Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Alison Stedman. Alison's an award-winning actress and much-loved star of stage and screen. Her career spanned all genres of TV, film and theatre and includes Abigail's Party, The Rise and Fall of Little Voice, The Singing Detective, Boomers and Gavin and Stacey. Born and brought up in Liverpool, she now lives in London with her long-term partner Michael and is a doting grandmother to baby Freddie. Alison Stedman, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. It's good to be here. Can we start today by me asking you if you've had a significant experience of death in your life? Well, I've lost both my parents, um, which, you know, one would... um, is is quite obviously a normal thing at my age not to have your parents, but I miss them terribly. Mm. Um, They were very good parents and very kind, and my mother... Um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And she died quite a long time ago. It's probably 24 years since she died. Um, But I still carry the pain of that with me, although I can deal with it, but it still makes me incredibly sad. And it was um, such a shock Mm. because although she was suddenly not very well... And she had various symptoms. Um, I don't know, but we all just assumed, oh, it was something that could be put right. It was a gallstone in a gallbladder or I don't know, something, you know. I'm not very medical, but um, suddenly to be given this devastating news, consultant, when we went to see him, um, wasn't a guy with any empathy. He was um, obviously a brilliant doctor, but he had no bedside manner. (laughs) He had no um, empathy at all. Just told you as it was, two to six months, can't do anything. No point in me uh, even attempting to do a biopsy. Pancreas is a very difficult uh, organ to uh, find in the body, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it it was just awful. Um, He told my mother that she had terminal cancer she was alone in a hospital ward. She had no nurse with her. She had no member of family, nobody. And she said to me she felt as though he had slammed her against the plate glass window that was next to her bed. That's how she felt with the news. And it was before mobile phones, and she had to ask a nurse for one of these mobile phones. They used to wheel in then yeah. and put coins in so she could ring my sister to tell her this news. I mean, it was just appalling. Mm-hmm. And when I went to see him, I made some notes because I thought, this is not right. And I said to him, how dare you do that? 
just walk into the ward on your rounds. And he said, I wasn't on my rounds. I said, oh, all right, maybe you weren't on your ward rounds. It doesn't matter. You know, there's a kind way of doing this. No one wants to lie, but there's a way of putting it that makes it more bearable for the patient and not such a shock. Feel like you've just been punched, you know, because it, it was out of the blue. And I... um I said to him, I said, I'm telling you now that you do not tell her she's got between two and six months to live. That mm. will not help her. Anyway, um, we went home and I was with my sisters. I've got two older sisters. Right. And um, I was assigned the job of telling my mum because... Obviously, we were, the three of us were called to the hospital, so she knew there was some, you know, it was bad news. And when we came home, I immediately, you know, lost my voice. I started to cry and I pretended I needed the toilet quickly and I dashed upstairs and got myself together and came back down. My mum just looked at me and her first words were, any hopes? And it was just that phrase that, Oh, devastated me mm. and um, anyway I said to her look mum I said the truth is of course you've got this cancer we can't change that I said but the point is he's put a stent in now which will you know make you feel better divert the whatever the bile duct or whatever it is that you, know, you had yeah. to do I said and it's going to and I said and I said he's not God he doesn't know how long you've got you know, I said, what we've got to do is we've just got to live every day now and you're going to feel a bit better. Um, and I said, forget forget how horrible he was. I said, he's a brilliant doctor, but he doesn't have a bedside manner. That's, you know, I said, and come on, you know, we're, we're just going to live. I said, look at you now today. You're looking a lot better. And, you know, we'll look. And she said, oh, well, perhaps things aren't so bad then. She lived for two years. Now... I honestly think if I'd have said to her that day, I'm sorry, Mum, he said you've got between two and six months, her spirit would have died. You know, mm. She would have gone down. I don't know. I, maybe some people would argue, well, you should tell people the truth. Maybe there's a sort of half-truth or something. I don't know. I really don't know. But I just know that my mum had a sense of oh, well, I can go on for a bit longer now I've got this stent. And the stent came out eventually, then she went down, and then he put another stent in. He put four stents in her bile duct in the end, um, and that did keep her going. And as I say, he was a brilliant doctor. I wouldn't, you know, mm. say anything else about him. But I think doctors should have a good bedside manner. They should have empathy. They, they should put themselves in the patient's position and understand the fear and what it's like to be told mm. out of nowhere that you've got terminal, a terminal illness. It's kind of how to break bad news. Yes. There's, there's, I, as I say, my mum, she had a reasonable two years. I mean, she was up and down. Sometimes in the main hospital, uh, they were so busy, they were so rushed. And the worst thing was that one time she got put on a geriatric ward. That was appalling. 
I mean, all right, I'm going back 24 years and I hope things have improved since then. But at the time, the care in that ward was, well, I, I can't use the word care. It, there was no care. Uh, food was brought along, stuck on the thing next to them, walk away. The things I saw, it, it makes me weep even now to, to think of it, you know. And uh, my mother felt very sick when she was there, constant nausea, and I kept going to the sister on the desk and I said, can somebody please give my mother something or somebody? Yes, yes, well, we'll do that. Don't, you know, tell me my job, that sort of attitude. So I went back, I waited another hour, I went back again, I went back three times. And they didn't bother. The only thing she got was when the trolley came round with the pills on, at the time allocated, mm. then they gave her something. But the, no one was there to see her apart from that. When she was in Marie Curie and she felt sick like that, immediately somebody was there, gave her something to help. I can remember a nurse um, kneeling down by my mum, holding her hand and saying to her, now Marge, can we tempt you with something? How about a boiled egg? How about a bowl of custard? How about a yoghurt? You know, things that I would have done at home with my mum yeah. she, when she was very ill. And my mum said, oh, well, perhaps a bowl of custard would be nice, you know. And they, they turned up with a... It was just so lovely to have that care. Mm -hmm. The complete opposite to the care that she was getting in the hospital, you know. Can you, for those people listening, can you tell us how your mum ended up going to the hospice? You know, she was in the hospital. She'd, she'd already had her diagnosis. She was living with a terminal illness. Do you remember how the hospice came about? I remember very clearly how the hospice came about. After the visit, we were called, me and my sisters were called in to meet the consultant, um, and he'd given the worst news ever when um, he'd gone. And we were sitting there, obviously in tears, me and my sisters. The sister, the ward sister, came in, and she made us a cup of tea, very kindly made us a cup of tea, and she said, look, your mum's very ill. She's going to need a lot of care. This hospital isn't capable of that care. She actually said that. She said, we haven't got the staff, so she said, we're going to recommend that she goes to Marie Curie um, because they do have the staff and they do have the care, she said, and she will get proper treatment there, proper care, end-of-life care, but she said she won't get it here. And so we were so grateful. So you were all on board with that once you'd heard, I mean, the, the thought of hospice, because for lots of people, certainly who come to the hospice where I work, um, are scared, you know, just about yeah. what hospice means and, you know, what it's meant to them, what they've heard about it. Yes, well, uh, my mum's visit to the hospice, I remember she put her best dress on and my mum was always very smart. She was always very elegant. You know, she had her makeup. She she painted her nails up until a fortnight before she died. You know, she she was determined to. She had a very strong kind of character. She went to the hospice and she met a lady there, a lovely doctor, and she met various members of staff. And she came back, 
And she said, oh, they were so nice. She said, do you know, she said, that doctor said to me, Mrs. Steadman, you do, I do like that dress you're wearing. She said she chatted about my dress and chatted about this and that. She said, oh, they were lovely. Of course they talked about her illness. Of mm. course they did. But it wasn't, they welcomed her like that. So she felt relaxed and the atmosphere was such that she, it took her fear away. You know, that terrible fear, it took it away. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember when she was she was in there, it was just so, I don't know, just to see a trolley coming round with some, I think had some whiskey and a sherry or something and offered <laughs> patients a drink. Now, not everyone wanted that, of course, but it made them feel as though they were living, there was life, you know, they, were, they weren't suddenly shut away in this place where everyone just sort of had cocoa and died, you know. Everyone was, I don't know, helping. You know, there was music therapy and massage and, I don't know, all sorts of things. It was just... It was just kind. And people had thought it through about this thing of having a terminal illness. So Mm. it wasn't just about... The injections, the treatment, the this, the that. You know, of course that was important. Um, but there were the other things as well. Not just the medical care, but yeah. the whole person. Yes, exactly. All of their needs. Yes, that, yes. Know. And that's what makes this awful process that, you know, we're all going to have to go through at some point of facing, our, you know, end of our life because that's, you know, what what it's all about. Some of us are luckier than others and perhaps have longer and don't have horrible uh, diseases to cope with. But, but it's, you know, that's the luck of the draw. But if you do get the bad news like that, to have somewhere like the Marie Curie to go to with people who can talk to you and help you, not just apply all the medication, it's, it's so important. Did your mum ever talk about death? Did she talk about her own death near the end or did you have that conversation as a family? Not really. Mm. No, I don't think we did. Um, I, I, I just remember I'd taken her shopping and uh, we came back and she went to bed and I was just tucking her in bed and she said to me, do you think I'll still be here by Christmas? And this was about the end of November or something, you know. And I said, of course you will. I said, I've just bought you a new black skirt, a new jumper. <laughs> I said, a pair of slacks. I said, of course you'll be here. <laughs> and it was, I suppose it was my way of not being able to face it, you know. Um, and then... About a week before she died, I was with her. And she said to me, am I dying? And she was. Mm. But I couldn't say yes. Mm. Sorry. Mm. So I said, well, you will die, Mum. I said, but not not just now. You know, because I could see she was drifting towards the end. Um, I mean, that... So we... We did accept it, but we didn't talk openly, mainly 
I think because she probably didn't want to. I don't know. Or perhaps my mum was always quite kind of quite sensitive about upsetting us as a you know as children, and so therefore she probably didn't say. You know. That happens lots. Yeah. You know, so many people who, other people who are dying, living with a terminal illness, mm. are protecting everybody else, the family. Yeah. And then the family are protecting them. And so often, in those, you know, and I think they're, they're very difficult things to face. Yeah. They're very difficult conversations to have. Yeah, well, it's this journey that we're we've got to go on and we don't know where it is and what happens and you know if we knew then that would be different but we don't Mm. um and i suppose if you're very religious and you have a a belief in god and that you will go to heaven or whatever it is whatever religion you are you have that and that probably makes you feel more secure and you can hold on to it but if you haven't got that and you've just got this open kind of thing of well i don't know it's quite scary, but like jumping out of a plane, you know, you think, well, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to go, but, uh, you know, I'll just have to find out. Yeah, it's... Um, Is that something that helped you? Do you have a faith? I don't have a faith. I, I mean, my parents brought us up. I was brought up um, Christian. You know, I uh, grammar school I went to, we would sing hymns every day and we would say a prayer, but it wasn't a religious school particularly, but it mm. was, you know, that was in the 50s. That was what most schools did, you know. Mm. Um, and I think religion sometimes has a big and an important part to play in life, can have. Um, and I you know, the teachings of Jesus Christ, who could argue with those? But then most religions have those teachings within their kind of format, you know, of Mm -hmm. be kind, be good, be respectful, be you know, and all those things in life. And so I think you can't go wrong if you follow those. And I do sort of have a love somewhere inside me for for this this figure of Jesus, you know, who I don't really believe in, but I somehow from my childhood I used to love Jesus. But I suppose in my adult years, you know, you have a broader perspective of life and religions and all the rest of it. So you sort of, um, you go down different paths. Um, I, ju- I just, you know, believe in the principles of life, of being fair and kind and that everyone deserves a chance in life and everyone should be equal. Although we know that isn't the case, but if we keep working towards that, it'll help. Mm. Mm. Um, and to, to, you know, to love your children and teach them love and hopefully their children, they will love them and, you know, you'll hand it on from generation. Because I, I was very lucky. I had very kind, loving parents and they also had a sense of humour, which was nice. And um, so we had good fun together. It's part of the reason why I became an actress because my mum would encourage me to do funny voices and you know, when I was a kid. 
She would often say, oh, there's nothing on this television. Turn it off. Alison, do Hilda Baker. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd rush upstairs and get an old coat and an old hat and come down and do my impression of um, Hilda Baker, who was a comedian that used to be on television. And and my parents would laugh their heads off. And I'd think, well, this is quite good, this, you know, if you can make people laugh. And it used to make me feel good. And at Christmas, I would always entertain the family with, you know, jokey things and um and so she you know she really encouraged me and so i ended up in theater and television yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's um there's a lot of humor in the hospice you know mm. there, there's 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 a lot of humor often around death and dying and i think lots of people certainly who we come across find that very helpful you mm. know as well you know being able to um, just, I think, like you were saying earlier, that focus on living. Yeah. Um, you know, and not the focus on dying, but focus on quality of life. Yeah. And and somebody still maintaining their identity. You know, you describe mm. in your mum sort of painting her nails yeah. right up until yeah. a couple of weeks before. Did did your mum die in the hospice? No, she didn't. I, I, I wish she had have been in the hospice when she died, but... You know, it's that thing, she said, I want to go home, and it would have been better if she had have been in there, I think. But, um, no, she was home for two weeks, and then she died. Um, and it was, it was, she was obviously on medication, which was making her a bit confused, and she got a bit confused towards the end, and... Yeah, I, I wish she had been in the hospice. There was just one day I remember I was visiting, visiting her. She was in the hospice and a doctor came to see her. And my mum said, um, I haven't given up, you know. I haven't given up yet, she said to this doctor. The doctor said, well, we can see you haven't, Mrs Stedman. Don't worry, you know. And my mum just went, no, I haven't given up yet. And she had this, you know... And it was, it was great to see that. Hmm. But of course, inevitably, um, the disease took over. So you know, as everyone knew, it would. But she had some good times during that two years that she she lasted. Hmm. You know. Hmm. Marie Curie wants to change the way the UK talks about death and dying. We believe an open conversation with loved ones now can make life better at the end. For more information on how to start the conversation and free tools and resources to help, visit mariecurie.org.uk forward slash talkabout. Marie Curie, for life to the last. Just moving forward a bit to um, your mum's funeral, had, was mm. that something that she talked about? I mean, was it something that she'd, you know, that, that you knew what she wanted? Had she planned for it? No, she didn't talk about her funeral. Okay. Um, no. And never had done even before? No. She was also never expressed her wishes to whether she wanted to be buried or cremated or... No. She didn't. But my grandmother, when my grandfather died, I was only a toddler then, I don't remember it, but she had a family grave of four people, you know. Yeah. So my grandfather was buried there, and then my grandmother was buried there. 
And then, so we buried my mother there. Um, yeah, so that's what we did. But she, she never mentioned it, no. I don't, it's weird, isn't it? But I suppose we were always so keen on keeping her alive and keeping her positive and that, that we didn't go down that path and maybe we should have done a bit. But um, So you all made the decision together as a family and planned the funeral? Yeah. 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 And there was a particular um, piece of music that apparently my father had a record he'd played to my mum when they were courting. And it was a particularly beautiful piece. So we decided that that's what would be played at my mum's funeral. And that was the very last piece of music that was played. And it was great because it, it sort of ends on a sort of up note and sort of it just drifts off this music and I guess I thought I would completely go to pieces but I sat there and when I heard this music and as it finished I felt incredibly proud of both my parents this music just sort of like seemed to you know seemed to be saying goodbye in a lovely way to them um it was it was really nice. I mean, I I still cry for my mum and my dad um, all the time. You know, I have a tear. I have a... It doesn't... You know, something will remind me. I'll hear a piece of music or I'll... I don't know if I'm feeling a bit tired or a bit low. And I'll go, oh, Dad, you know, I wish I could talk to you or I wish I could see you. I mean, that's the way we are, isn't it? And, you know, it's... I kind of look for signs that they might have sent me as a message or something. Mm. This particular piece of music is the intermezzo from Cavalier Rusticana. And um, I was with my two sisters and a friend a couple of years ago. We were having lunch in this restaurant in the Lake District. Actually, it's not a couple of years, about 10 years ago. Having lunch in this restaurant in the Lake District and we were just sitting there and it was towards the end of the evening. We'd finished our meal. We were just about to get a cab back to our hotel. And suddenly this music came on. And my sister said, listen to what they're playing. And it was the intermezzo from Cavalier Rusticana, which is our music for our parents, you know. Yes. And it was just such a lovely moment. And we, we just all sat and held hands, oh. you know, because it was almost like they'd just come to us and said... We love it that you're all together on this holiday and you're having this nice time, you know, we just... It was... Listen, it was probably just pure coincidence, but it did mean a lot to us, that yeah, moment. Sounds lovely. When we heard that music, yeah, and the three of us were together, you know, which were not that often because we live in different parts of the country, you know, and we were all together, yeah. Because the one thing my mum used to say, she used to say, when I'm gone, promise me one thing that you'll always stay close, you'll always stick together, mm. don't drift apart, promise me that. And we said, Mum, we promise you, and that's what we've done. Mm. Yeah. Parents can often be the linchpin, can't they, to that kind of staying together. Yeah. And then if they're not around anymore, then yes, that that's drifting right. can happen yeah. and you have to make an effort. <laughs> yeah, you do. What's helped you or does help you with your grief? 
Oh, I don't know. And the older I get, the more I seem to grieve. It's weird, but, you know, because I, I do get quite down sometimes now, um, but I, I keep it to myself. It's very private, you know. Mm. I don't sort of share it very much because uh, you think, oh, people don't want to hear that, you know. Mm. <laughs> get fed up with that. But when I was at school, when I was a schoolgirl... Um, Always, if something went wrong, you know, I would always be the one that would say, doesn't matter, we can do this, we can do that, you know. And I became, I used to get be called The Unsinkable Molly. There was a film called The Unsinkable Molly about this boat that, that didn't, never went down, you know, in all the wars and whatever it was. And so I got called this, The Unsinkable Molly because <laughs> um, I would always be the one that you know, had a positive attitude and said, doesn't matter, we can do this, you know. And I find myself more and more as I get older and losing that ability. I still try, but, you know, sometimes I just go, oh, you know, I kind of um, worry about things more. I don't, it's an age thing. I think when you hit 70, you sort of like, things change a bit. You sort of see, oh, you know, so I was with a friend the other night and she said she was working with a group of young people. She works in town planning business. And she's 70. And she's surrounded by these 25, 30-year-olds. She said, and they're all kind of constantly saying, but the thing is, in 20 years' time, in 30 years' time, what we're going to see is... That, and she said, she was sitting there thinking, oh, dear, I don't think I'll be seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> and she said they're constantly referring when to the future. When you're 105. Yes, <laughs> exactly. You know, so... Um, but I, I... Someone once said to me, you know, never complain about getting old because a lot of people don't have that privilege, and it's true. You know, I mean... You know, you hear of little children dying or whatever and the wars in the world and oh, these terrible things that are happening. Mm. Through the whole world, as human beings, we are. We just can't stop killing each other. It's just a nightmare, isn't it? And so sometimes I have to really say to myself, look to the good things. I went to this school called Chill Valley High School in Liverpool, uh, which was an all-girls grammar school, and we had a wonderful head teacher called Miss Brown, and she was a wonderful lady. And our school motto was... Hayo cogitati, which is think on these things. And at the end of every year, when the you know the leavers were there, she yeah. she'd have this message for them, and then she'd read from the Bible: whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things. And I often go back to that when you're a kid and you're in school and you go, oh yeah, oh it's, you know, think on these things and all that, you don't sort of take much notice of it. But now, particularly with the dreadful things that happen in the world mm. and the sad things that happen close by with friends or family or whatever, mm. and you have to go back to the good things. You know, you watch the news and you see all these terrible things happening and I don't know, Syria and all these wars and these poor people. And I go back and I, I say, think on the good things in life, the good people. There are good people. There are good things. Mm -hmm. there, there is kindness. There is, you know, 
wonderful things happen in the world. Think on these things. Don't go to the bad. Keep going to the good. And I realised what she was saying all that time, you know. You get it it now. It has a different meaning or it has meaning. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so um, that's what I try and do. But, um, yeah. You touched a bit on... um, your own mortality, our own mortality, when we're faced with it, which often happens in grief and loss. Yeah. Do you think about your own death? Yeah, sometimes. Mm. I try not to dwell on it, obviously, because um, I'm very privileged. Um, I'm of an age, I'm still working, I'm still busy, people still want me to do things, and that's great, you know? And I think... One of the main things in life is to keep busy. It doesn't matter what you do, but do things every day. You know, if I'm on my own at home and perhaps, you know, I'm not seeing a friend or, you know, I'm on my own, I think, right, I'll see a film. You know, I'll look up a film and I'll feel great. I'll go to my local cinema, you know, see a nice film, come home and I think, yeah, that's good. You know, but if I just sit there and dwell on things, so, you know, it's to use every day to be to be busy and I listen I don't know how I'll die I don't know when I'll die I could get hit by a bus tomorrow Mm. and I could live till I'm 95 you know Mm. we just don't know we Mm. don't know so therefore um, you know we've got to be grateful for every day that's what I say one of the things we hope to do with the podcast is by encouraging people to have those conversations with their own families about death and dying um, is so people can think about some of the practical things that might help, yeah. um, you know, for their family. So so um, I'm wondering if you've had a conversation with your family about funeral wishes or writing a will or getting down on mm. paper some of the... No, I haven't. I've written a will mm. because I don't want any nonsense when I die, you know, and I want to make sure that it's easy for my... I've got two sons. I want to make sure it's easy for them to sort things out. Nothing worse than, oh, where are the papers yeah. for this and where's this, you know. I've got a file and it says my will on front so they can go straight to it yeah. and they can sort things out. Um, but, yeah, it is hard. It's not an easy thing because we... I mean, I've got a little grandson. I've just got one grandson who's two and... My best thing is when you look at him, his smile, his he runs about, you know, this cheerful little soul, you know, you can see his enthusiasm for everything <laughs> all the time, you know, and that really lifts my spirit. So, um, but, you know, you, you have to be realistic and say, well, there will be a time when I'll go, but I... I kind of, I suppose I have made a list of music I'd like played at my funeral. And I did that about 10 years ago. And then I looked at it recently and I thought, actually, I've changed my mind now. I don't think I'd, I don't think I want that. And maybe I'll have this. <laughs> so, you know. Um, it's ever evolving. Yes. The plan. Yes. Yeah, the plan's ever, yeah. No, it's an odd thing, isn't it? Yes, I say, we we don't want to dwell on it, but you have to acknowledge that um, your turn will come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking back to that, um, you know, about buying the plot for four people 
as you were describing yes. earlier, you know, mm. with your kind of grandparents. And I mean, you know, my, my grandmother did the same and, and, you know, up in Newcastle. And I always remember from a really young age, it's like, you know, this is where I'm going to go and I'm going to be with my husband and there's two more spaces and, mm. you know, my parents will decide what. And, um, and that seemed like it was always thought out maybe back then and talked about and planned for. I don't know. I don't know whether there's... Well, because now we're all saying that there's not enough space for us to be buried and, you know, we all should be cremated or, you know, whatever. So my father was cremated and I do have that sense of, oh, there's nowhere to go. Do you know what I mean? Because when I visit my mum's grave when I can and... uh, but the main thing is we've had his name put on the stone right. so that he's recognised and, you know, he can be seen. And, and sometimes people can have ashes put somewhere, can't they, mm. with a sort of plaque or a stone. Yeah, absolutely. Is legacy something that's important to you? You know, how people will remember you, how you'd like to be remembered. Is that something <laughs> you've thought about? Um... <laughs> I don't know, really. I, I mean, the main thing I hope, I hope I've passed on things to my sons that they will then give to their children, you know, um, or just if they don't, if my other son doesn't have children, that's up to him, but um, that they can pass on to life to other people, you know. Mm. So, uh, you know, to be kind, to be loving, to not to be selfish and all those things. I, You know, um, hopefully I've taught them <laughs> to grow up like that. I don't know. I suppose the older you get, the more you do reflect on things. You know, when you're young, you're so busy living, so busy with kids and living and whatever it is, you know, you don't have time to sort of reflect. But now uh, you do sort of start to think. Sometimes the more you suppress emotions and feelings and bottle them up, it doesn't help you. It's best to talk about them and share them. Alison Steadman, thank you so much for joining me today on the Marie Curie Couch and, and sharing your stories as well. Yeah, really well, appreciate thank you. it. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. Join us next time when we'll be talking to journalist Owen Jones. This podcast is made by Marie Curie, a national charity that supports people affected by terminal illness. For more information and support, you can visit our website, mariecurie.org.uk. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse 
by Pan-Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.